0: You're listening to audio from 7 Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmallwaltham.com. Every single passage of scripture is ultimately about Jesus Christ. Every single one every page of your bible now that might seem like a, a strange thing to say when you consider some of the details about what the bible is right so the, the bible is not just just one book though it is that it's it's a collection of 66 different books right old and new testament various different genres you have narrative which is story you have poetry you have teaching you have letters you have prophecy, all these sorts of different genres come together in these 66 books. There are over 40 different authors, human authors inspired by God, from a variety of different backgrounds and ages and places and social statuses. It was written over a period of over 1,500 plus years, involves 10 different civilizations, three different continents, and three different languages. Pretty overwhelming book, isn't it? But when you put all of it together, the Bible tells one unified story with one main character. His name is Jesus, who has come to rescue and redeem his people. I see some heads nodding. If you've been around Seven Mile Road for a while, this is not new to you, but we need a refresher, right? Our our church name finds uh, its origin in this conviction, right? We draw the name Seven Mile Road from Luke 24, where after his resurrection, Jesus um, appears incognito to two of his disciples. They, 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 he keeps them from noticing that it's him, and they're on the road to Emmaus from Jerusalem, which the text tells us is seven miles long. And these two disciples are, are shocked and confused, Because their master, their rabbi, their teacher Jesus has just been crucified and they've just heard that the tomb he was buried in is empty. And so they're discouraged, overwhelmed, confused and to them as they consider all of this it is completely unexplainable until Jesus explains it to them. He says this in Luke 24 verse 25 through 27, how foolish are you. And how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and enter his glory? And, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Jesus says, all of the scriptures are about me. He tells him later on in that passage after he reveals himself. He says, this is what I told you. While I was with you, everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. In other words, all of the Old Testament. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the Scriptures. Even before this, and before Jesus' death and resurrection, Jesus taught this in his ministry. He told those, the self-righteous uh, leaders of the day in John 5, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me, that you may have life. For if you believed Moses, what did Moses write? First five books of the Old Testament. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. Friends, when we come to the Bible, we see that the Old Testament anticipates Christ. The Gospels manifest Christ in his arrival and ministry. The book of Acts declares Christ as the Gospel goes forth. The letters, the epistles, they explain and teach and apply Christ to the churches. And Revelation looks forward and anticipates Christ's return. As Sally Lloyd-Jones says in that wonderful Jesus Storybook Bible, every story whispers his name. Jesus is on every page. Now, what does that have to do with Exodus 17? Thank you for asking. There are times when we come to passages in the Old Testament And it can be difficult to make the connection to Christ, right? Some of you are plugging along through your Bible reading plan that you started in January. Hopefully you're still plugging along, right? And you you come to things like genealogies and you're like, what does this have to do with me or Jesus or anything? I can't pronounce any of these names. Or strange laws about fabrics, right? And yes, all those... Not the point of today, but all those do point to Jesus. But sometimes it's harder to make those connections between Christ. And then there are those passages in the Old Testament that are so clearly about Jesus that they almost jump off the page and lovingly just like slap you in the face with the gospel. Exodus 17 is one of those passages. It's a a slapper, if you will. Christ is so clearly here for us. And we are a people just like the grumbling and forgetful and weary people of Israel in this passage. We are a people who need that gospel jolt. We need to see Christ clearly. We sort of started this theme last week. We've seen testing and grumbling, very very similar themes here in this passage continuing on. You see grumbling and anger, frustration towards God, like that of Israel here, reveals the desires of our hearts, right? And here we see the people desiring something other, in, other than God. They're desiring earthly comfort. They're desiring provision. They're desiring it so much that they're even willing to say, I'd rather go back to slavery than to endure this. Their desires are inordinate, so they're grumbling, so they doubt him. They test the Lord. And what they need, what you and I need, is a fresh vision of who Christ is for us. Because we too wonder, where's the provision going to come from? We too grumble when Our plans and hopes are are dashed and wonder what the Lord's doing. We need to see and remember our provision and victory that we have in Jesus as well. More More than any earthly provision or victory. We need the provision of God's very presence. And he gives us that in Christ. And that's what Exodus 17 points us to. So as we work through this passage, we're going to see two pictures just very simple outline this morning. First, we'll see Christ, our rock of provision, verses 1 through 7. And then second, we'll see Christ, our banner of victory in verses 8 through 16. So as we dive in, number 1, what do we see here? Christ, our rock of provision. Look again with me at verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved from the wilderness of sin by stages. Side note, sin is not it's just a place. It, it doesn't mean a wilderness where sinning was happening, though that was true, right? It's, so it, it's, it's just a, a geographical location. Wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Now again, if you read this or you're here last week or you've read uh, Exodus before, you might think, didn't we just talk about that? And the answer is yes, a very similar situation just happened, right? End of chapter 15, there was water, but the water was undrinkable. And so what do the people do? They grumble against Moses. They grumble against the Lord. The Lord miraculously provides for them. And you would think, oh, great. Now the next time if something like this happens, they're going to trust the Lord, right? No. Same thing happens here. And and God is showing us how hard-headed and hard-hearted, not just they can be, but we can be, right? How easily we forget the provision of the Lord. We might have seasons of our life where we see God at work in amazing ways and we praise Him and thank Him, and then the very next season might be one of difficulty, might be one of thirst and weariness, and we forget His grace and we revert back to grumbling and accusing the Lord of lacking goodness. Same thing's happening here. Thankfully, his grace, as we saw last week, his grace is more persistent than their stubborn hearts and ours as well. But notice also in verse 1 that the text is very clear. Moses is very clear here. It is the Lord who led them to this place with no water. It's another repeated theme, isn't it? Verse 1, Israel moved from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord. God sovereignly leads them where there is no water. He leads them to a place of difficulty. Uh, Dr. David Pallison was a, a counselor and an author, and um, few people have had more impact on my life and ministry and my own growth than, than him. And f- a few years ago, I was taking a, a class with him called Dynamics of Biblical Change. Some of you have taken that class here. You too. Um and in this class, he there's this great chart that he has, and he describes how um, how our hearts respond in moments of trial, right? whether it's suffering or we're sinned against or when we're tempted, and he shows you how the how the heart responds and how that response reveals what you're trusting in and all these beautiful, it's just a great chart. And he wrote this whole thing on, he teaches through the whole class and you think it's done. And then he goes, I just want to add one more thing. He takes the the marker and he walks over to the the whiteboard of your life and your struggles and, and he draws a huge circle around it and he writes sovereign God around it. And he says, just so you know, Everything that happens to you is within the purview of a sovereign and loving God. Even the hard things. Friends, that's what verse 1 is telling us here, right? Whatever happens next, we have to know this. God has sovereignly led his people to this difficult place. Now, read on in verse 2. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. So as the people thirst, they start grumbling. means to complain, Right? And they're quarrelling with Moses. Now, this word quarreling here is interesting because it's actually a legal term. So they're not just complaining um, and, and hurling accusations at him. They're at, what's actually happening here is they're they're trying to actually officially put him on trial in a concerted effort to overthrow his leadership. You see that they're taking him to court. And they think that the, his supposed failure is apparently so serious they're ready to kill him for it. You see that verse 4? Ready to, th- to stone him for leading them into this place. Now there's a side lesson here that I don't think we can ignore. Don't ever think that being faithful to God's leading will make you popular among the crowds. Right? Moses is learning that. And he will learn that lesson time and time again as he leads these people. It's always foolish to judge faithfulness and success in God's eyes by merely cultural popularity and acceptance. Moses is 100% obedient to God's leadership and as a result, the people tried to kill him for it. Now notice also here that we see another repeated theme we saw in chapter 15 and 16 uh, last week. We see this theme of testing in verse 2. Last week, God tested his people, by leading them in these places. But you see, a, you see a major difference here. In, in those chapters, 15 and 16, God is testing his people. Here, we're told that his, the people are testing God. They're, they're not saying, this is important to understand, they're not saying, God, we, we've seen you provide before, and we're just struggling to believe now. Would you help our unbelief? No, that would be a God-honoring prayer as they wrestle in their thirst. Instead, they're hardening their hearts towards God and they're accusing not only Moses, but they're accusing God of wrongdoing. Psalm 95 is a, is a commentary on this passage. And it says this, Psalm 95, 8, Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, that's where we are here in Exodus 17, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. Now what does it mean to test the Lord? Simply it's to try and manipulate God. To try and force His hand to act in a way that we want, Instead of trusting in his good providences for us, that's what the people are doing here. God, I'll, maybe we, it looks like this for us. God, I'll believe and trust you if you sort of give me this thing, whatever that thing is promotion, relationship, peace in my family, so on. Now, I think most of us wouldn't pray directly like that. I think it's more subtle. So, one way to identify in your own life, am I testing the Lord? is to ask, what are the ways you're tempted to grow frustrated with God? If you don't see him work in, in, in this certain way or see this provision or whatever it may be, if that leads you to be, become frustrated with God because you haven't received what you think he should give to you, then you are testing him. You haven't trusted him. You have put him on trial. You're accusing him of wrongdoing. And this is, this is exactly what Satan attempted to do with Jesus in the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry, Matthew chapter 4. Then the devil took him to the holy city. So Jesus is out in the wilderness. He's been fasting. He's being tempted by Satan. And he set him on the pinnacle of the temple and he said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down for it's written, he will command the angels concerning you and on their hands They will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. What's Satan doing? He's he's trying to tempt Jesus to put God to the test. And how does Jesus respond? Satan twists scripture. Jesus responds by quoting Deuteronomy 6 verse 16, which is a commentary on Exodus 17. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. Exodus 17. So friends, when we, when we test the Lord, instead of trust Him, we're putting ourselves in the place of God. That, that's what the people do here. And how does God respond? Now, studying this passage just reveals the sin in my own heart because I look at this and I go, swift judgment would be in order here, right? Just hit the reset button here. But once, ag- once again, to their benefit and to ours, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Isn't he? Verse 5. So, so Moses has said, what do I do with these people? Here's how, how God responds. Verse 5. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Now, if you remember from earlier in our Exodus study, this staff, the plagues of, uh, in, in, um, in Egypt, this, this staff represents the authority of God. So Moses is told to take the staff with some elders and go before the people. It's representing God with this symbol of authority and power. God's authority and power going before the people. But, but God goes even further. Look at verse 6. Behold, I will stand before you there On the rock at Horeb. And you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Now, I've read this passage many times, and I, I missed something until studying it this last couple weeks. Do you notice? that God doesn't just say, strike the rock. He doesn't just say, represent my presence and authority as you walk before the people. He he actually says, I will stand on the rock. What he's doing here is he is putting himself on trial, if you will, before his people. Moses says, okay, what, what should I do with these people? And he's probably thinking, again... We could use a good flood right now, maybe, and just start all over. Me and Aaron and her and Joshua, we can hang out with our families and start this thing over. He seems exasperated, but God says, no, 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 no. no. They need water, so I will give it to them. I will give them their physical provision, but they need something much more than satisfaction of their physical thirst. They need my very presence. So I will stand on the rock, and here's the picture, I will absorb their grumbling and complaining and accusation, though they are completely undeserving of it, and in turn, I will graciously give them not only water, but my very presence. And friends, this is is where the gospel message leaps off the page at us. And we know this because the Apostle Paul, commenting on Exodus 17 in 1 Corinthians 10, writes this. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all ate the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. That's an incredible statement, isn't it? Paul is looking back on this, and he's saying this physical thing that God used to bring forth this miracle. Let me tell you that there is a deeper spiritual reality going on here. The rock is Christ. Exodus 17.6 is a clear picture of the cross of Jesus Christ. On the cross, what do we see? A divine court case between God and man. Humanity stands guilty, deserving of just judgment, and by, by the way, completely unaware of it, hurling accusations against God. Yet Jesus, the sinless Son of God, Stood condemned in our place. And what did God say when he got on the cross? Strike the rock. And Christ was stricken. Judgment fell on Jesus. He then rose from the dead in victory. And as a result, those very people, deserving of just judgment, when they believe the gospel, they receive the overflowing blessing of God's presence. The rock was Christ. First Corinthians 10 isn't the only hint we see of, of this. The Gospel of John, I'm convinced the Gospel of that John had this in mind. In John chapter 6, we see the miracle of, uh, of bread, right? Jesus feeding these thousands of people and pointing to himself as the bread of life. In John chapter 7, we read this. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. You want the rock? You want the water from the rock? You want true satisfaction? You want God's presence? Believe in Christ. In Exodus, we have Exodus 16, bread from heaven. Exodus 17, water from the rock. In John chapter 6, we have Jesus, the bread from heaven. John chapter 7, Jesus, the fountain of living water. Gospel is so clear here for us. And here's the encouraging thing. You and I don't deserve it at all. We deserve swift judgment. We deserve to be stricken. And how encouraging is it for us that as we are, I know many of us in, in the wildernesses of life right now, grumbling, tempted to, to accuse God of wrongdoing, looking to other rocks, other fountains that have left us dry and thirsty, tempted to put God to the test. Friends, know this. Nothing in this world will ultimately satisfy. Nothing will bring us back in relationship to God. He knows that our greatest need is not physical thirst, though he graciously provides for us physically, does he not? He knows that our greatest need is Jesus. So we should not harden our hearts. We should come to him and turn from our grumbling and bitterness and see that we have full provision of God's presence in Jesus. And when we believe in him, he pours out his spirit as he guides us through the wilderness of life. Christ is our rock of provision. Then, secondly, we see Christ is our banner of victory. Now, we so we move on to verse 8 in a completely different scene here. But right after this happens, so far we've seen that the Egyptian uh, or or the the battles for God's people after they've left Egypt are internal, right? Grumbling hearts, trying to trust the Lord. This is the first external battle we see. Someone attacked them from the outside. And we read in verse 8, then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Now the Amalekites, so the, the people of Amalek, were descendants of Esau. Esau was Jacob's brother, and they, these people were enemies of God, and we see that this is an unprovoked attack, and we see this because Moses writes in Deuteronomy 25, remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt, when you were weary and worn out, they met you on the journey and cut off all who were lagging behind, they had no fear of God. So you get the picture here, this is not a fair fight. They attack them while they're weak and thirsty, and the idea here is they're stragglers behind. The weakest of the Israelites were attacked first, and we're told they're complete enemies of God. No fear of God. Now, we need to zoom out here for a moment and, and understand that this battle, Israel and the Amalekites is an expression of something deeper and and more pervasive, a spiritual battle that we see in Scripture. We've seen this in every book of the Bible, Old Testament book that we've studied. So that the Israelites, God's chosen people, versus the Amalekites, that, that enmity is rooted in Jacob, God's chosen man, and Esau, his brother. Esau, the Amalekites come from Esau, The Israelites, Jacob's name's changed to Israel. God's people versus God's enemies. You can trace that. We'll skip a few. But you can trace that all the way back to Cain versus Abel. Abel or Cain, a, a, a descendant of the seed of the serpent. Abel, the seed of promise. And that is rooted in this battle we see in Genesis 3 between God and Satan. What does he tell Satan? He says, your offspring... And her offspring, the offspring of Eve, the offspring of wickedness and the offspring of promise, will do battle. There will always be opposition in people trying to destroy God's people. That is the enemy's plan. We see that traced all the way through Scripture. Why? Because through God's people, the Savior of the world will come. And the enemy wants to stomp that out. You remember our, our study of Esther? The bad guy in Esther, the one guy who wanted to annihilate the, the Jews was a man named Haman who was the last of the Amalekites, right? It's a deeper spiritual battle going on here. This stretches forward too. We see it in Babylon against Israel. We see it in the New Testament, in the world, the flesh, and the devil, as opposed to the church. So as, as Christians, we, we call this something. This reality is called spiritual warfare. So this isn't just some random battle in Israelite history. This is spiritual warfare. Ephesians 6, 12 says this, For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So we can rightly look at this battle and ask, what does this teach us about our own spiritual battle as God's people? And there are three lessons, I think, that are extremely helpful for us here. First, we see that God fights for his people. God fights for his people. Verse 9, so Moses said to Joshua, first time we meet Joshua, by the way, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek, and tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek. While Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill, and whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. Now, once again, we see the staff, right, keeps coming up. This is, Moses had this as a shepherd when God appeared to him. Chapter 3, burning bush. The staff was used in the plagues against Egypt. In chapter 14, it's used to miraculously part the, the sea, providing a way through from the Egyptians. We saw it used to provide water from the rock in the desert just now. And, and here it's used to ensure victory over the Amalekites. And just like Moses raised hands, there's nothing magical happening here. These are ways that God shows that the victory doesn't belong to Moses or to Joshua or to Aaron or to her or to you or me. The victory belongs to the Lord. That's the why behind these things. We, we fight our battles not in our own strength but by the power of the Spirit. Now, we're not up against an Egyptian army or Amalekites, but we are doing battle with our own sin, right? Temptation. We do live in a world that is opposed to God and his people. We, We have an enemy that, as Peter says, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour us. So friends, this leads us to ask, are you fighting your spiritual battles with the Lord's strength or your own? When you battle temptation, discouragement, attacks of accusation from the enemy, do, do you look to your own strength to try and win that battle? Or are you, as Paul says in Ephesians 6, are you strong in the Lord in the power of his might? One man in church history who wrote a lot about this was, was Martin Luther. And he's in, in a letter that he wrote to a young friend named Jerome Weller, who was really struggling with spiritual warfare, struggling with fighting against temptation, discouragement. And and Luther writes this letter to encourage him in a very practical way to turn to the Lord as the victor in those battles. And he says this, just great practical advice here. Try as hard as you can to despise those thoughts which are induced by the devil. In this sort of temptation and struggle, contempt is the best and easiest method of winning over the devil. Laugh your adversary to scorn and ask who it is with whom you're talking. By all means, flee solitude. That's really good advice. Don't be alone when you're struggling with temptation. For the devil watches and lies in wait for you most of all when you're alone. This devil is conquered by mocking and despising him, not by resisting and arguing with him. And then here's the part to focus on. When the devil throws your sins up to us and declares we deserve death and hell, we ought to speak thus I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? Does this mean that I shall be sentenced to eternal damnation? By no means, for I know one who suffered and made my satisfaction in my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Where he is, there I shall be also. Hear what Luther says? Don't say, you know what, I had a good day yesterday. I read the Bible really well last year. I used to pray more. I, I think I can do it. No, he's saying the battle belongs to the Lord. You go to Christ. God fights for his people. Second, we also see that God fights through his people. We need to hold those things in tension. One temptation may be to say, well, God fights my battles for me, so I don't really need to focus on spiritual warfare. I don't need to focus on fighting. Well, that's certainly not what we see in, in Exodus 17, do we? Look at verse 12. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and one on the other, so his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. You see that everyone is actively involved in this battle. Even though it's the Lord who brings victory. Moses is, is, is fighting this battle in the strength of the Lord. And the, the same is true for us. We, we don't just come to Christ and say, you know what? I shouldn't be actively fighting against these spiritual battles. Charles Spurgeon writes, he says, the children of Israel were not under the power of Amalek. They were free men, and so we're not under the power of sin any longer. The yoke of sin has been broken by God's grace from off our necks. And now we have to fight, not as slaves against a master, but as free men against a foe. Moses never said to the children of Israel while they were in Egypt, go fight with Pharaoh. Not at all. It is God's work to bring us out of Egypt and make us his people. But when we are delivered from bondage, although it is God's work to help us, we must be active in our cause. Now that we are alive from the dead, we must wrestle with the principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness if we are to overcome. Friend, ask are you active in the cause of fighting against sin and temptation? Are you pursuing holiness in your own life? That is a way to apply this text. Can you say with the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 2.11, we're not ignorant of Satan's devices. Meaning, I know how, the Lord te- or, or how Satan tends to tempt me. I know my own struggles. So I can do war with those things. Are, are you willing and ready to enlist the help of others in your spiritual battle. Notice that this, this is a community project, right? Joshua is fighting on the battlefield. Moses raises up his hands, but he can't do it alone. He needs Aaron and her to come and hold them up. He is weary in this, but as everyone fights this battle together, God brings the victory. What a beautiful picture of community, of the church, right? Some of you are, are here this morning and you are hiding spiritual battles in your life. You're, you're fighting sin and temptation and struggles, but you're going, you're going at it alone. Maybe, maybe it's because you think, oh, I don't really want to bother other people with my struggles. Friend, that, that is pride. Maybe you think, I'm, I'm too ashamed to admit that I'm struggling with this thing. Well, and your hands are just slowly falling down. You're, you're weary and alone in the battle. Humble, humble yourself. Know that there's no shame in saying, I need someone to help me with this sin struggle or with this doubt or with this fear or whatever it may be. If you're ashamed, just know that the one prerequisite to be a Christian is to know how messed up you are. So if you're like, I'm too messed up. I don't want to tell other people about this. Well, welcome to the club. Enlist the help of others in this battle. And I think there's also a hint here that God fights spiritual battles through his people through prayer as well, right? We're not not actually told that Moses prayed in this text, but you got to imagine as he's looking over the battlefield, right? His people are weak and weary. you got to imagine that he is very likely praying, asking God to help. And the act itself is an act of complete and utter dependence upon the Lord. And that's what prayer is. It's calling out to the Lord in utter dependence upon Him. Friends, that's how God brings victory. He fights through His people who are engaged in the battle, in community, and dependent upon Him in prayer. And what's the result? In closing, we see this. The ultimate victory belongs to Christ. Look at verse 14, then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. By the way, that happens in the book of Esther when Haman dies. Verse 15, and Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So Moses writes a memorial inscription as a record of God's victory in battle to remind Israel that God will defeat their enemies. So when future attacks come, they'll look to God in faith for the victory. They'd be reminded of this. But then he builds an altar and he names it Jehovah Nissi, the Lord is my banner. Now, a banner was, this is a military thing, a banner was this piece of cloth bearing a military symbol, and it was raised in battle on a pole, and soldiers would look to it, they would see their, their banner, it would show them who they are, it would remind them who they are, it would, if the banner was still raised, the victory was theirs. It would give them courage and hope, and as long as the banner's still flying, they know that the battle is not lost. Friends, you, do you see it here? You see Christ here. Moses, God's representative to the people, stands on a hill with his arms raised, and through this action, God brings victory over the enemy of God's people. A banner is raised to remind the people. That the victory belongs to him. The enemy has been defeated. When we come to uh, Isaiah chapter 11 verse 10, we see this of the coming Messiah. On that uh, day, on that, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. That, That promise was fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the root of Jesse. The son of David and the son of God who was raised up on the hill at Calvary. Arms stretched out so that all who looked to him. So the enemy would be defeated. And all who looked to him would find salvation and victory and rest in Christ. Christ is our banner. So friends, we need to see and remember our provision and victory that we have in Jesus. No other rock will satisfy All the fountains of this world will one day run dry, but Christ our rock is an inexhaustible fountain of God's presence. All other banners, all the things that we look to for victory in this life, one day they will all fall down and fade away, but Christ our banner will remain forever. So brothers and sisters, let's look to him in faith.